So this morning, I want to uh, continue with the image of the city, but as a metaphor for nirvana. And as we saw last night, nirvana is like a city in the sense that a, of a city with walls around it, with gateways. In other words, uh, an enclosed, protected space governed by the rule of law. That's the medieval city, the old city. And that's used as a, an image to help us imagine what uh, the experience of nirvana might be like. At this point, I think you have to perhaps put out of your mind um, a lot of the rather um, doctrinal uh, presentations of nirvana as something really rather out of reach, as the kind of the final goal of Buddhist practice that maybe arhants and very enlightened people see every now and again, but nothing that you would actually feel to be within your own immediate experience. Uh, that has to go, I feel. Uh, nirvana is actually something that is already present, as we will see. So the third of the four tasks is, in fact, to see and behold and contemplate nirvana. But nirvana is simply here describing the uh, stopping of reactivity, even for a few moments, and even when the reactivity is going on. In other words, you might have all kinds of uh, anxieties, let's say, running through your mind, but you also have the capacity to be aware and mindful of all those anxieties running through your mind. And that mindful attention is um, not reactive. Uh, the one who's aware is not reacting at that moment, although we are mindful of our reactivity. This is quite an important point. So that um, when we talk of the stopping of reactivity, we're not talking of the mind somehow shutting down and becoming a kind of a, a zombie or something. Um, but we're actually talking about adopting another way of being with our experience, one that's grounded in a conscious, mindful awareness rather than one that is constantly being overtaken, overwhelmed, carried off, caught up in all the uh, reactive stuff that constantly pours forth. If reactivity is rooted in our biological survival mechanisms, we're never going to switch it off. It can die down, it can flare up, but at some level it's kind of a constant. It's a given of any um, living body, as it were. So when the Satipatthana Sutta, which is the, the main 
classical text on the practice of mindfulness, when it says mindful, uh, yeah, mindfulness is the direct path to nirvana, which is how the text opens, mindfulness is the direct path, actually it says ekayana, which means the one way, the only way, which Buddhist translators don't like saying because it sounds exclusive, it sounds like a kind of a proselytizing move. But that's actually what the text says. In other words, mindfulness is very intimately tied to the experience of nirvana itself. And arguably, it is nirvana. There is something nirvanic about stopping and paying attention and not letting that attention be colored or disturbed or distracted by whatever is bubbling up in experience. The two are very close. So nirvana is classically defined as the stopping of reactivity, the stopping of greed, the stopping of hatred, the stopping of delusion. But stopping doesn't here mean stopping for good, uh, which is probably impossible. Um, nor does it mean some highly advanced state of meditation that none of us could really could realistically expect to experience. I think that's also wrong. But rather, it's paying attention, learning to pay attention to those moments in experience when we are relatively non-reactive. We're still and we're quiet and we're able just to attend to the absence of reactivity, the quiet, still space of attention itself. I was giving a similar talk to this uh, on, on, on this a couple of weeks ago at a big mindfulness conference in Amsterdam. And uh, one of the people in the audience was Ajahn Amaro. He's the abbot of the monastery at Amarawati. And the next day he gave a talk and he also reflected on this point. And he gave a very good example to understand what it's like to behold or to notice the stopping of reactivity. He said it's like sometimes you're in a room and there's this annoying background noise. Maybe the refrigerator is humming or buzzing. Uh, there's kind of an annoying, you know, ambient sound going on. And then when that ambient sound stops there's a moment of enormous relief. Oh. And for a few moments, you notice, you behold the stopping of that sound. But it's also interesting that although that feels really good, that sound has gone, you can quieten down, it's a sense of release, of letting go. At the same time, of course, it also allows all the other more subtle, maybe more um, less intrusive sounds to become more audible. It's not as though there's no sound at all, but in the, in the cutting off of that noise, you can be with all the other sounds that are likewise present. But it's also interesting to note how quickly the mind will attach to the next interesting stimulation that comes along and that silence will be forgotten. 
In other words, we only appreciate that silence for a, a brief period before getting caught up in something else. And that's a bit like the third task of beholding or seeing the stopping of reactivity. Sometimes we sit in meditation and we find ourselves uh, suddenly very quiet, very grounded. Um, the usual chatter and rush of emotions has, for the moment at least, died down. The third task is to consciously appreciate and enjoy and savor and taste that quietness, that stillness, to just allow ourselves to come to rest in that space. Again, it may not last long, we'll probably get distracted by something, but nonetheless the, the practice is to allow ourselves to become more familiar, more intimate with that quiet, still, non-reactive space and to th feel it, to feel how it somehow resonates through the body. It's not just a, an idea, it's a felt experience. So what I'd like to encourage us to do today on this final day of our retreat is to try to see to what extent you can simply come to rest in this quiet, silent, non-reactive space. And if you get carried off again, which will probably happen, then don't worry about that. Notice it. Embrace it. Don't get caught up in it. Let go of it. And then just become aware of the, the still, quiet um, space of just paying attention and come to rest in that open-minded, quiet attention. And that is nirvana. Uh, for those of you who have been heavily programmed by Buddhism, this might sound strange. It might sound somehow, you know, that can't be true. <laughs> and um, that's often the response I get. When I was in Paris, as I mentioned the other day, before I met the lady on the train, <laughs> I met a young guy called Paco, uh, who came to the weekend, a young French chap. And he works in Bangkok for the Ajahn Buddhadasa archive. Buddhadasa was a quite famous Thai Ajahn, a senior monk, um, who lived in, who founded the monastery of Swan Mok. Some of you might have been there. And he was a very radical Buddhist thinker, despite his, you know, preeminence in the Buddhist world in Thailand. He rejected the idea of reincarnation. Um, he advocated what he called Dharmic socialism. Um, and, this is the point of the story, he also wrote a little booklet called Nirvana for everyone. And um, Paco, who was at that weekend, said, you might find this interesting. Um, I'd actually never come across this particular idea of Buddha Dasa before, but lo and behold, I opened my little booklet, Nirvana for Everyone. And it says basically what I've been saying. 
all along that nirvana is actually something that is present as soon as your attachment or greed or anger dies down. Nibbana, Buddha Dasa points out, just means cooling off, blowing out. And he argues that this is something that we experience all the time. Like the fridge sounds switching off, it's a cooling down of the noise, and we're in that Nibbanic space. And Nibbana, therefore, is nothing sacred or holy. It's simply um, those moments in life where the noise and the racket and the reactivity, particularly, have died down. And this is simply part of our our human birthright, really, our hu- the, the legacy of being human. That's a capacity we have. And this is also um, quite explicit in um, some of the very earliest uh, texts uh, in the Pali canon as well. Particularly, um, one uh, phrase that I suspect has a quite early origin, where the Buddha says that nirvana is clearly visible, immediate, inviting, uplifting, and felt by the wise. He says this also about the Dharma. That's how that phrase is is usually uh, uh, quoted. The Dharma is clearly visible, immediate, and so on. But on a number of occasions, he said of Dharma, he says Nirvana. Now, clearly visible means that it's something that is actually uh, visible here and now. And it's interesting that the third task also implies this idea that it's something you can see. You behold or you see the stopping of reactivity. And you can do that because this stopping is sanditical, clearly visible. Interestingly, the Buddha also says in another context that uh, this dharma or this nirvana is also dudaso which means hard to see. So it's clearly visible, but it's hard to see. That's not a contradiction. It's clearly visible, but it's difficult to notice it. In other words, it's right there before our eyes, but we can't see it. In Zen, they have a wonderful metaphor for this. They say, we're like, or they compare the practitioner to a fish who spends its life swimming through the ocean, looking for water. So the water is clearly visible, but hard to see. In the fish's case, well, I don't know anything about fish, but, um, but you get the point. It's so immediate, it's so present, that it's almost impossible to see it. And that, I think, is a very good way of thinking about nirvana. It's clearly visible, but it's hard to see. And the practice of the third task, beholding the stopping of reactivity, is the practice of training ourselves to see this clearly visible but somehow elusive uh, stopping clarity, openness and calm. It's also, the, the, other ter- the next term that's used about Nibbana is that it is akaliko. Um, which Bhikkhu Bodhi translates as immediate, 
which I think is a very good translation. In other words, akaliko literally means atemporal or timeless. Timeless, I think, is not such a good translation because it makes us think of things like eternity. But what it means is atemporal, non-temporal, which means that you don't arrive at it through a series of steps in time. It's already right there. It's immediate, unmittelbar. It's, it's not mediated by time, by experience. It's right here and now. Again, it's got a very strong Zen feel to it, this sudden awakening idea. But here we find it in these very old Pali texts, referring to Nibbana. It's right here. It's inviting. It's ehipasiko, which means that it, at some level, it already exerts an attraction upon us. This possibility of stillness, of well-being, of calm. These moments somehow appeal. They have a, a draw to them. They're somehow pulling us in a way. They're seductive when we actually connect with them. It's uplifting. In other words, there's, certain, there's also a certain dignity, I think, in being still and poised and attentive and centered. That also has a kind of moral quality to it. It's not uh, agitated, anxious, worried, but calm and still, which is the foundation, I think, for our being able to reflect and consider afresh what really matters for us. It allows a kind of a, an ability to be more sensitized to what really matters in life. And it is felt by the wise, Nibbana is something, the, the word, it's, this is some trans, translated as experienced by the wise, sensed by the wise, felt by the wise. The verb is Vedanyati, I think, which means the same word as Vedana, feeling tone. Exactly, it's a verbal, it's a verb form of Vedana, feeling tone. In other words, it's, we, we feel it in the same way that we feel pleasure or pain. So again, it's something to be felt, to be sensed, to be intuited. And it's not felt, sensed and intuited by the wise Buddhists, but the wise. It's got nothing to do with some Buddhist monopoly. It has to do with anyone who we might consider to be wise or uh, you know, a sage of some kind, irrespective of their traditional background. Uh, this is the kind of space that the sage dwells within. Uh, we may immediately pick up a resonance maybe with the Taoist sage, but we'll also find if we go through other traditions that you know, this is an experience that's hinted at, valued, acknowledged uh, you know, in many, many traditions. Another synonym for nirvana is emptiness. Now, again, this is a term that is very much a part of uh, the Buddhist vocabulary. Um, and in some Buddhist traditions, emptiness becomes 
you know, the ultimate truth, you know, what is the, the fundamental nature of reality is being empty of inherent or self-existence. But the Buddha never spoke of emptiness in this way. He never spoke of emptiness as something to be understood, as something we had to somehow gain some privileged uh, yogic insight into it and having gained that insight and understanding of emptiness we then become enlightened. Uh, That's an idea that we certainly find in uh, later forms of Buddhism, including Theravada Buddhism, Zen Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism, they all speak this way. But nowhere in the suttas does the Buddha talk like that at all. For him, the word emptiness is not a totally central idea. It occurs, uh, but it's not center stage. And it quite clearly does not refer to something that you need to know about in, in some deep way. The relationship that the Buddha has to emptiness is one of a dwelling. Um, there is a sutta, a discourse in the middle-length discourses called the Chula Shunyata Sutta, the, the shorter discourse on emptiness. And it begins by uh, the Buddha acknowledging to Ananda, his nephew and his attendant, he says, for the most part, I dwell in emptiness. Um, and this, is a, this notion of dwelling occurs also when the Buddha talks about mindfulness. We dwell in mindfulness. He uses it Again, when speaking of loving-kindness, compassion, mudita, sympathetic joy, equanimity, all of them are described as vihara. Vihara means a dwelling place. To dwell is viharati, exactly the same word. So likewise, loving-kindness, compassion, equanimity, sympathetic joy are dwellings. Emptiness is a dwelling. Mindfulness is a dwelling. The jhanas, the absorptions, are also dwellings. But oddly, the language of dwelling is not so um, widespread in, 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 in much contemporary Buddhist uh, discourse. And I think it's useful to dwell on this for a little moment. Why, why choose this word dwelling? It's, it's, again, it's a metaphor. Uh, these kinds of meditations are like the experience of living or dwelling somewhere. It's, cur- it's interesting in that it's not implying a cognitive process at all. It's not about knowing emptiness or or knowing loving-kindness, or radiating loving-kindness. or It's actually about coming to rest in these spaces in such a way that they have a kind of feeling of being at home. We live in these spaces. And to live somewhere 
is something that engages the totality of who we are. It's not just our body is living in my house in Surbiton, but my thoughts, my emotions, my relationships, they all dwell in this physical environment or space. So likewise, it may be helpful when we talk of of seeing the stopping of reactivity. This is also synonymous with the Buddha's account of dwelling in emptiness. And the emptiness here is not the emptiness of inherent existence, which is a metaphysical idea really, but it's the emptiness of reactivity. It's the reactivity that is emptied out momentarily or for longer. And that's where we dwell, in that non-reactive space. Let me just read you a few passages from this sutta. Um, so he, uh, the, the Buddha is speaking, he says, in, in, when we live in this way, uh, when we dwell in this emptiness, in this non-reactivity, one's heart is freed from the influence of greed, of hatred and delusion. In this freedom, the insight dawns, this is freedom. So this brings another rather central idea into the mix, that this non-reactive space, this emptiness, is also where we find freedom. Now this freedom is not some abstract freedom, but it's a, it's, it's a twofold freedom. It's a freedom from reactivity. In other words, we're no longer bound or, or caught up in such reactions. But at the same time, it's also a freedom to respond to life unconditioned by reactivity. This is a distinction you find in the philosophy of Isaiah Berlin, who talks of two kinds of freedom, the freedom from and the freedom to. And this works extremely well in the four-task model. The stopping of reactivity is both a freedom from reactivity, from what has arisen and what we've let go of, and it's also a freedom to respond to life, the situation we're in, in a non-reactive way. So nirvana, in this sense, is, is the kind of the, the pivot or the, or the fulcrum or the turning point of the path. It's where the path, in a sense, sort of comes to rest. It's the turn... It's the, I was doing this in Germany earlier this year and someone said um, uh, they were very interested to see how nirvana war nicht der, das Endpunkt des Pfades, aber der Wendepunkt des Pfades. It's not the end point of the path, it's the turning point of the path. I thought that summed it up very well. Whereas we tend to think of nirvana as the end point where we're going in some distant future. In fact, it's the point on which the whole practice turns. It turns from a life driven by reactivity to a life 
that is free from reactivity and responds free from those influences. But then the text continues. It says, with none of the anxieties due to those influences, greed, hatred, delusion, reactivity, I am prone to the amount of anxiety that comes from having the six sense fields of a living body. This is what's striking here. It recognizes that this freedom, this non-reactive freedom, is free from the anxieties that come from our, you know, our disruptive emotions. But it's still embodied, it's still locked into an organism with six senses. And simply being alive in this world as a, as a surviving organism is prone to a certain degree of anxiety, a certain degree of disturbance. That's unavoidable, that's life. So again, the distinction here is that the, 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 the freedom from reactivity is not the same as the freedom from all anxiety and suffering and so forth and so on. It's a very specific mode of freedom that is then able to appreciate what anxieties and troubles simply are a given in our psychophysical existence and which are, as it were, added on unnecessarily. The so-called second arrow problem. So this state of awareness, the Buddha says, is empty of reactivity and that which is not empty is this, the six sense fields of the living body. So the emptying ourselves of this reactive, opinionated mind allows us to become more fully present with our physical existence, our embodied existence. It's a strange conclusion, in a way, to a text on emptiness. You actually end up back in the body. So that gives us maybe some pointers to reflect on through the course of the day. But what I'd like you to do um, is to either you know, continuously as you're doing your practice or periodically uh, to just stop when you feel yourself particularly coming into a much quieter, stiller, focused embodied awareness, then become conscious of that. Actually take that space as the object of your attention. Learn to value and appreciate, to enjoy, to taste, uh, to savor that emptiness, that non-reactivity, that nirvana. And, and really allow yourself the time to feel it as deeply as you can. Try not to get into you know, theory. Uh, try not to worry too much about, is this really nirvana or is he bullshitting us? The, the, the important point, whatever you call it, is that this is a possibility that I suspect most of us have experienced glimpses of or feelings of through the course of the week and it would be a good opportunity today to really deepen and heighten that sense of 
non-reactive presence of mind and just to dwell in that. Once again, what does it mean to dwell, to come to rest in, to feel at home in this space? Um, You may have found through the instructions we've been giving that there's been maybe an overload of suggestions. And I've just added on another bunch of suggestions. If you find that this is actually just too confusing, then stay with the practice you've been doing that really grounds you best and stick with that. And don't worry about whether you should be reciting in the mudita phrases or asking what is this or dwelling in emptiness. or Just let that go. And come back to the core practice, maybe it's just watching the breath, that serves to ground and focus you in the moment. And don't worry too much about all these other possibilities. But for some of you, if you feel inspired or curious about, let's say, this notion of dwelling in emptiness, then explore that. But if your exploration takes you off into repetitive thinking and uh, fantasizing, then come back to the breath, come back to the body and just ground yourself once more. Uh, That's the key. And both Martine and I feel that um, it's up to each practitioner to find an approach, a practice that works for them, that responds to your particular situation in life. And that's the reason we give these different approaches, is for each of you to, to, to cultivate and to develop a practice that uh, meets your needs. It doesn't meet the need of supporting the doctrines of some Buddhist school. It's your needs, our needs, uh, and how these practices can best uh, fulfill and address those kinds of concerns. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.